Matthew chapter 2, verse 34 to 46. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Our Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that in your kindness you've revealed yourself to us. And Father, we thank you that the words of the Bible are not just mere human words, but that your Holy Spirit breathes them out. And so we pray that just as he caused these words to be written, so that now he would help us to understand them, that we might trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might live lives that bring pleasure to you. Amen. See if you can guess uh, which corporations are behind these vision, value, mission statements up on the screen. I've got a couple of them for you. Uh, A personal computer on every desk in every home running our software. It's a memorable one. Anybody know? Microsoft. Indeed it is. There's also the ungrammatical. uh, To be your favourite place and way to eat and drink. That is the golden arches. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not favourite. There's also the highly unintelligible. How about this one? By creating value for our customers, we create value for our shareholders. We use our expertise to create transport-related products and services of yawn, superior quality, safety, and environmental care for demanding customers and selected segments. We work with energy, passion, respect. Anybody still awake want to have a guess? Volvo, obviously. (laughs) And then there is the really faintly ridiculous to fill the earth with the light and warmth of hospitality. <laughs> the NHS, <laughs> alas no. <laughs> Almost as ridiculously and far more expensively, the Hilton Hotel Group reckon that is their vision. Now the point of a vision or a mission statement is that it's supposed to clarify what you're about as an organisation. Your core values and your key goals. It's not everything that you do, but it is the thing that if we don't do this, we're really not doing anything. 
What about for humanity? What is God's vision statement for humans? What does God want from uh, you and from me? What is it that the Christian should have as our vision statement if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, to put it another way, what is each and every one of us here for? What is my purpose in life? If I'm to live a fulfilled life, what should I be about? Jesus tells us, love God with all that you are and all that you have and love others the way you love yourself. That's God's vision, mission, value statement for all of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Okay, uh, this bit of Matthew's Gospel that we're in, uh, we've been in it for a couple of weeks now um, and it is basically like the end of a Bruce Lee martial arts film. It is. So you know how it is, even if you've never watched one, I'm sure you know, there's always the scene at the end, there is the um, the, the ripple torsoed uh, Bruce Lee with his shirt ripped off, I won't recreate that. <laughs> and he's surrounded by the bad guys, and each one in turn comes to attack him, and he dispatches each of them with his chops and punches and kicks, and again, I'm not going to strain my hamstring by recreating that, uh, and he basically, he, he knocks them out one by one, until none of them are left standing. It's only a film. This is really combat to the death, what's going on here in Matthew chapter 22. As each of the major groupings in power in Israel try to get rid of Jesus. And it will end in his death. Uh, verses 34 to 35. Let's, uh, let's jump into the passage and we'll see what's happening. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Now, uh, he's, he's got rid of the Herodians uh, a few verses back. He's just dispatched, quite literally, not silenced, but muzzled the Sadducees. They can't say anything more to him. So now the Pharisees step forward. And their cunning plan to catch out God and human flesh, let's ask him a question about his Bible knowledge. <laughs> not the brightest, are they? Verse 36. Teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the Pharisees are the university-educated theological elite, uh, and they're convinced that this sort of rabble-rousing upstart with his Scouse accent and his total lack of formal education, he's just he's bound to make an idiot of himself answering a difficult question like this. That's what they think. And um, it's quite a clever question in many ways. It's, what they're doing is basically like interviewing a Scotsman, a Scottish celebrity on television and saying, are you for independence or are you against it? Whatever you say, half the people are going to hate you. And that's their aim. I mean, what will Jesus do? This is a very complex dispute. Will he choose one of the Ten Commandments, the foundational laws of Israel? Or what about one of the other 613 commandments that are within the five books of the Old Testament? Or will he pick one of the 11 laws cited by King David, the great king in Psalm 15? Or one of the three laws cited by Micah in Micah 6.8? Or one of the two laws from Isaiah 56 verse 1? Or, or the one law that Habakkuk and Amos point to? Or will he go with the great, ever-popular Rabbi Hillel, who said, uh, the law is summarised as, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What will he do? Who will he offend? Will he slip up on this one? 
Once again, Jesus dumbfounds them with his answer. But once again, what Jesus says is not just historically interesting. Look at how this great religious teacher dealt with a dispute in his day. God the Holy Spirit is addressing each one of us tonight and saying, this is what I want from you. And this is my will for you in your life. Firstly then, verses 37 to 38, what is the most important command that God has given us? What is God your father and your creator and the judge who will one day assess all of your life? What does he want from you? What do you need to do if you are to see him smile on your life? Well, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, that the Jews would have prayed twice a day. It is not obey the Lord your God, although as his creatures, of course, will obey and do what he says. It's not believe in the Lord your God, although given that he exists and he's the foundation of all existence, all reality, of course we'll believe in him. It's not even worship the Lord your God, although if I'm a vaguely right-thinking person, I can't but respond to God by, except by worshipping him, giving him everything I have and am. No, verses 37 to 38, we are to love him. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That means do all of those other things, but not out of a sense of obligation or fear or pride. But do them out of a love, out of while cultivating a delight and a joy and a longing for this God, an affection for him, not just an admiration or an obedience to him. And why does he list a um, heart, soul and mind? I don't think he's, a, he's giving some psychological breakdown of the human character. He's basically just saying, look, with every fibre of your being, with every affection of your heart, every thought of your mind, every sinew of your body, with everything you have and everything you are, love God. That is how we are to live. So loving God, it should be clear, is not the opposite to obeying the law. You see, it's easy to read these verses and think, um, well, people are right when they say things like, look, what matters is not whether you keep the laws. What matters is that you love God. That's what matters. You know, God has, you look at what Jesus does on earth. He has a lot more time for sinners than he ever does for Pharisees, which is true. You can't claim you love God, though, if you continually do the things he hates. Imagine a married man, uh, wife hates it if he flirts with another woman, understandably. Hates it when he doesn't listen to her, when he fails to clear up his mess, put down the loo seat. And you carry on doing those things, even though your wife continually says, please don't, please don't, please don't. And eventually she says, you're killing this relationship with the, the way you behave. It is as good as dead. He says, but how can you say that? I love you. She's probably going to say a whole lot of things to him, but one of them will be, how can you say you love me? If you love me, you wouldn't do things that that cause me such distress and pain. You wouldn't continually disappoint and hurt me. And that is the truth. God has no time for loveless law-keeping, but we cannot pretend we love God unless we keep his law. 
So if you like the relationship between the law and love is like a, a train and tracks. So love is like the locomotive, the engine that drives it along. If there's no love, there's no desire to obey God. We go nowhere. But the law is the tracks. It, it shows us the direction to go, what to do, how to love God. You haven't got any tracks. The train just runs off anywhere. We need both love and law. The law of God shows us how to please the God we love. How to serve him. How to please him in the way we treat our families. How we use our work, our time, our money. How we treat the poor. How we use our votes in elections. How we use all of life in a way which pleases the one we love. And love for God is what will drive all of those individual actions. Love for God is what will make us do things, not from fear, pride, or or just a knowledge that I must obey, but from the delight of a child who wants to please the Father they know delights in them. That is the picture that Jesus has for us of life that pleases God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. In one sense, it is a very simple statement. But of course, the implications are enormous and profound and affect everything. Firstly, it means that at the heart of Christianity is an unimaginably awesome, far-off, creates entire universes out of nothing, sort of immense, unimaginably great God who wants you to know him and love him just as much as he loves you. That is what is at the heart of Christianity. What this means for you and me is that if loving God is not at the heart of what I think Christianity is, if it's not at the heart of the way I think about God, then I don't really get it at all. Now at this point, I guess some of us are internally shifting a little bit uneasily maybe. We're thinking, I'm not really sure I do love God that way. Now, it may be that some of us, actually, we don't really know God. We may know lots about God. We may have been around church things a lot. But we don't love him. And the reason's very simple. We, we've never received any love from him. And so this whole idea of loving God just, it feels a bit alien. It's not our fault. It's just we've never, we've never encountered God's love for us. So why would we love him? I want to say a bit more about that in a minute. But I guess there'll be others of us here who um, who are pretty confident we do know God. And yet, we'd find it hard to say, I love God with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. If that's the case, and I guess it is for probably all of us in different ways, let me um, highlight four reasons that we don't love God. And my prayer, um, as I've prepared, is that the Holy Spirit will help each of us know which of these is most relevant for me. Firstly, I think some of us are looking at the photo, not the movie. Uh, Celebrity gossip magazines. I'm told by those who read them uh, that often, apparently, they have uh, pages with pictures of celebrity couples like uh, Brangelina. I have no idea who that is, but apparently it's a celebrity couple. Uh, It has sort of pictures of celebrity couples and then you get the, uh, the relationship expert dissecting their body language. You know, look at the way they're leaning away from each other. This is a relationship on the rocks. The rumors must be true. It's a photo. 
capturing one thousandth of a second. I mean, he might have just broken wind accidentally and they're both just... I mean, who knows what's happened? Seriously. It's, you, can't, you can't judge the strength of a relationship on bang, that one moment. And I think the danger is that sometimes we do that. I think, gosh, I don't feel love for God right now, therefore, oh, I'm not really a Christian, I'm not a very good Christian, oh, I'm a failure. All of us have emotional ups and downs, is the truth. When the alarm goes off at 6.50 on a Monday morning, there is not a whole lot of love in my heart for anyone or anything. <laughs> it looks, you know, a few hours earlier, when the band's smashing it out on a Sunday night, it feels easy to love God. That moment on Monday morning, my heart looks a whole different place. But the point is, don't look at the snapshot, look at the movie. We need to look at, not how do I feel in this moment, but... How is my relationship with God when looked at over months and years? We all have our ups and downs. But don't get too hung up on the snapshots. Look at the trajectory of life. Look at it in the long term. Well, secondly, it may be that our hearts are just full with other stuff. My wife's a wonderful cook, but it doesn't really matter how good the food she prepares is. If um, on the way home I've given into temptation and stopped off for a dirty doner kebab with extra chilli sauce and filled my face, it doesn't matter how tasty dinner is, I'm just not hungry. I'm full. Dinner might be twice as nice and a whole lot more nutritious than what I've eaten, but I'm full. And spiritually speaking, many of us are too full with other stuff to have much love and space in our hearts for God. We fill our thoughts, our daydreams, our ambitions with holidays, houses, relationships and careers and there is just not a huge amount of space left for God in all of that. And like in any relationship, if we don't give it room, if we don't give it time, it will never amount to much. See, worldliness can dampen a love for God like nothing else. It fills us just with material cares. And the truth is that all these worldly things, all these good things, they keep us away from being filled with and enjoying and loving what is eternal. But the infinite longings of our hearts can never be fully satisfied by finite things of this world. But the thing is, when we turn away, when we actually carve out time, to listen to God as he speaks to us in his word, to talk to him in prayer each day. As we do those things, we find that slowly but surely a depth of relationship and love for God grows as we give the relationship time and attention and devotion. And it's especially as we come back to the cross as we see the depth of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, that our love for him is stirred up again and recharged again. So keep coming back to God. Don't let ourselves drift away from him. Don't let the relationship die for lack of time. Uh, Thirdly, I guess for others of us, we may well be Christians. We may well trust in Jesus in a sort of general sense. But the truth is, in a couple of specific areas of life right now, I'm walking away from God. I'm doing things God does not love that displease him greatly. And it never feels warm in a relationship. You never feel love towards somebody you're disobeying, someone you are actively turning away from. But as we live for him, 
when we turn back and follow him. As we experience that his laws, his rules are not restricting, but life-giving. As we find the surprising joy and freedom of living God's way, we find love grows for him as we feel just full of joy and thankfulness that God has shown us how to live, that God has graciously warned us away from danger and that God has set us on the path to wholeness. Well, fourthly, uh, lastly though, to be honest, none of us will ever get this right in this life. Until we enter the new creation, as we were hearing about last week, until the resurrection, when Jesus comes and not just gives us a new body, but he finishes the work of getting rid of the sin from our hearts. Until that day, we'll never fully love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. It is only in the new creation that we'll see how ugly and stupid sin is and how wonderful and beautiful our God and Father really is. And so until that day, don't expect perfection, but do aim to love God. He commands us to love him because he is the most lovable, to find fulfillment in him because he is the most fulfilling, to delight in him because he is the richest, most glorious person in existence. And one day we'll enjoy him as we should, but even now he is the answer to our longings. And there is no greater joy than setting our hearts on him even here. Well, before the Pharisees can even reply to what Jesus has said, he continues in verse 39, And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I mean, why on earth does he add a second one in at this point? You know, it's not like uh, teachers at school would sometimes set, uh, here's the here's the classwork, um, and if you finish that, um, do the stuff on page 48. As if we're going to get through the first commandment. You know, Jesus, I've finished that, I'm loving God perfectly, uh, what next? <laughs> it's not that at all. Rather, his point is this. True love for God always, always, always goes hand in hand with love for the creatures made in God's image. Those specimens of humanity sat next to you right now. Uh, The verse after the one on the top of your service sheets from 1 John explains this. So in 1 John 4 verse 20, we're told this. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's impossible to claim I really love God if I don't love the people God has made and who are right next to me. See, we might be able to kid ourselves. It's a very useful thing, him putting this second commandment with the first one. Because I can kid myself that I love the unseen God. Because he's not physically here. It's very hard to kid myself about the real items of humanity around me. Because it's obvious when I'm not loving them. Let me uh, just clarify again the meaning of this word love here. It means both do good to and delight in. Doing stuff and enjoying. So it's not enough to say, I love people. I feel warm and fuzzy about them. I often tear up on the news when I hear sad things. Love takes practical steps to do good for others. There's nothing wrong with feeling teary on the news. We we should do. We're just so punch drunk from all that's going on in the world that it doesn't affect us anymore when we hear of a hundred people slaughtered. But love is not about just feeling sorry for people. Love is about taking practical steps to do good to them. 
love as God defined it is sacrificial. If I'm loving other people, it will be costly to me in terms of my time, my money, my possessions, my emotions. But love is not grudging or cold. Love does things and delights in the person that is being loved. That is what makes it love rather than just charity. Love involves your heart as well as your hands and your wallet. And again, this command is very simple. (laughs) You can understand it. It takes a minute to explain. But it is terrifyingly open-ended and unqualified. We are to love other people the way we love ourselves. And you notice Jesus doesn't give you any exemptions. It's not like, I'll give you five exemptions of people you find difficult. No, it doesn't work like that. We're to love others, everyone, all. I love myself. I'm sure you do too. And I ensure, therefore, that I have a a roof over my head and nice food on my table. If I love others the way I love myself, then I will use my votes to ensure that as much as possible, politicians are elected who look after the poor and the marginalised in our culture. And if I love others the way I love myself, I will do what I can to alleviate the suffering of the people I come across. I love myself and therefore I don't want to be cut off from God for eternity, paying the the punishment for my own sins. And so I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. But if I love other people the way I love myself, then I will be bold and courageous and compassionate and I will tell everybody I can about the Lord Jesus Christ so that they do not face a godless eternity. I love myself and so I come to church and I go to small group because it helps my relationship with God grow and it means I'm looked after and I'm part of a community. But if I love other people the way I love myself, I won't just come to church about to get stuff for me. I'll come with a commitment to serve others. And decisions I make about whether I stay at this church or move to another one, whether I go to small group or take up these concert tickets, all those sort of decisions will be determined not by, well, what do I want? What do I need? But also by, how can I love these people the same way I love myself? It'll look very, very different because I love and I care for others. I won't just chat to my friends at church. I will want to welcome new people the same way I'd love to be welcomed if I walked in off the streets. And it doesn't matter if people are a little bit different or difficult. I still love them. I look forward to the queue of people coming to talk to me afterwards. Whether I miss church or small group, well, these are decisions for each of us, but what drives it? What drives our thinking, what drives our behaviour, what drives our attendance needs to be love for others, not just love for me. This is God's vision statement for you and me. This is what God wants from us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. At this point, Jesus has knocked out his last enemy. But the Inquisition is not yet over. So verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered, same word as used in 34, Jesus asked them, same word for interrogation that is used um, in both earlier sections as the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees have asked him questions. 
Only this time it is Jesus who's doing the asking. And his enemies have no answer. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So in that culture, a father was always greater than a son. So David could never call his descendant Lord. This stumps them. Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. And it's a prophecy that King David made about one of his descendants being a great king, the Messiah, the anointed king or the son of God, uh, who would rule over all God's enemies and rescue God's people. Now, all the hopes of the Old Testament are built into this person, uh, the Messiah, or Son of God. Uh, Son of God in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean divine God. So Adam is described as the Son of God, and then Israel is the Son of God, and then the kings of Israel are uh, described as the Son of God. It's it's more of a title of of, of God's anointed in the Bible. And in Jewish thinking, and to the religious leaders of the day, the Son of God, the Messiah would be a mighty king. A descendant of David, who just as David slew Goliath, would destroy all of Israel's enemies and restore the borders and rebuild the nation. That's what they were waiting for. But the bombshell that Jesus drops here is, you guys know nothing about what God's promises are about. You've totally misunderstood it. You see, the Messiah, firstly, the son of David that you're longing for, he can't just be a human. Otherwise, David cannot describe him as my Lord. Because he's his descendant. How can his descendant be greater than him unless... Unless his descendant is more than just a human king. Unless his descendant is God the Son, come to be the Son of God. Unless God himself comes to fulfil the promises and become the Messiah. Now, what Jesus says has particular relevance to the Jewish authorities of the day. What it means is, when you kill me, you won't just be failing to love your neighbour. You'll be failing to love the God you claim to love. And you'll be showing your hatred for him. Now, we are in a different position from the religious leaders. But these verses do force us to examine ourselves You see, because it's easy to, in one sense, to say we're called to love God. It's a statement no one in society would particularly balk at. God. Yeah, people like the name God. But this tells me it's not enough to talk about God as God the religious concept. God the way the religious leaders on Radio 4 speak about God. God as an interchangeable deity behind all the great faiths. God has revealed himself in concrete form. He is the God who becomes the man Jesus. And therefore I can only say I love God if I love and worship And give my all to Jesus. For he is God. I said I'd come back to address at the end. uh, Those of us who are not sure we love God this way. And wonder what what on earth the answer is. If I don't feel like I love God. What is the answer for me? Um, 
this is a picture of a, of a chap called Venkatesh Raskin. Or it should be any second. Um, he's a, he's a, called the lifeguard of Chennai Beach. He doesn't look much like Baywatch, does he? Let's face it. He's, um, he's not quite the, the usual build. He's not even an official lifeguard. He's just a very good swimmer and he loves saving people. And so every day he goes to Chennai Beach and the waves are very strong and lots of people haven't had swimming lessons there. And so he has saved literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I think that's amazing, personally. Here's, here's a guy who has saved hundreds of people. Unassuming, quiet guy. What do I think about him? I'm impressed. I'm glad there are people like him around. Do I love him? No. He's not saved me from drowning. I swim like a lead weight, but I do my partial drowning off Cornwall, not Chennai. So, great that he's alive, but he means very little to me. The people he's saved, they love him. He's a hero. He's a local celebrity to them because he's saved them. Lots of people have admiration for Jesus the same way they do for Mr. Raskin. Lots of people are impressed by his teaching and his miracles. It's impossible not to be. Lots of people even are amazed and think it's wonderful that he would die to save sinners. But you and I will only come to love God if we realise I am a sinner. He died for me. 1 John 4.19 on the sheets puts it this way. We love because God first loved us. That is what makes you love God. That is what stirs up love for God the very first time. And that is what refreshes love for God for the rest of your lives. When I discover that Jesus is more than just a fascinating historical figure who died on a cross and his followers claim rose again. But that he is God. And when I discover that I have turned away from God, I've lived in God's world and acted like I have a right to everything. And that I even have the right to decide what's right and wrong. I can make my own values, thank you. And yet God has responded to that act of cosmic rebellion by becoming a man, Jesus Christ, and then going to die on a cross to pay the death, the debt that I owe. When I come to know that about God, that he would die to set me free from my selfishness, that he would die to pay for my death, that he would die to give me a relationship with God so that God might once again love me, well then I will love this God with all my heart, with all my soul and with all my mind. Those of us who've been Christians for a while, I guess we know the danger is that we get used to that truth. We become over-familiar, or dare I say, bored by it sometimes. What is the answer to that? Well, one of the answers, to be honest, is is the simple old thing of read my Bible and pray. Why? (laughs) Because the Bible speaks with an infinite variety about the wickedness of my heart and the seriousness of my sin. And the Bible speaks with an infinite variety about the wonderful salvation that God achieves through Jesus Christ. And it is as I dig deeper into the Bible and discover fresh treasures, fresh insight of the glorious love of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is as I do those things that the Holy Spirit stirs me up again to love this God whom I've taken for granted. 
Jesus said in Luke 7.48, He who has been forgiven much loves much. Is as we grasp the depth of our sin and the depth of Jesus' grace. It is when we grasp what Jesus has done for you that you will start to love him. And when you experience such a deluge of love from God, you cannot help but start to share it out with others. It's not something we generate ourselves. It's something we receive from the God who calls us to love him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that these truths would sink deep down into our hearts, that you have loved us greatly through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we receive that love from you, as we see the amazing nature, your generosity in giving up even your son, his incredible sacrifice in going even to death, and the wonderful riches of a relationship with you that his death achieves, we pray that as we see these things, your spirit might stir us again to love you. And Father, we pray that uh, for some of us, even tonight, you might open our eyes to see for the first time the greatness of your love for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.